I think for many white evangelicals, because they believe this narrative that they are being besieged at all times and from all directions, they continue to scapegoat others to justify their fear and, and grasp of power. So how do we help people recognize their lack of general goodness and kindness towards their neighbor, especially their neighbor that's very different from them, when, when this is the narrative that they have believed for so long? How do we get Christians to stop feeling like they're the victims in, the, in this situation? That's a great question. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work and renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary. A historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation is Amy Peterson. She is a writer with her work appearing in Christianity Today, River Teeth, The Christian Century, and The Washington Post. She's offered, authored several books, including Dangerous Territory. Amy, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. So I know before we hit record, uh, I was um, talking to you about my great state of North Carolina, which I no longer live. How are things in Durham, North Carolina? Uh, you know, I really love Durham. We're keeping Durham dirty. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what they say. <laughs> uh, but no, it's hot here. Things are happening. People are wearing their masks. <laughs> it's a good place to be. Um, so uh, there used to be a shirt um, that was sold in Durham, and I love it. Uh, just for those that are from Durham, just kind of know the mentality of like, we want to keep Durham like Durham. Um, is I, I would rather be shot in Durham than live in Cary, Cary, North Carolina. Yeah. I grew up right near, which is basically like a bunch of yuppies. So um, Durham's a great town with a lot of amazing character and quality. And um, it's it's now this place where it's just growing exponentially, which is boggles my mind that that area used to not be as large as it is. So um, anyways, so you're not from North Carolina originally. Tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, I, I moved to Durham two years ago to go to divinity school at Duke as I'm on track to be ordained in the Episcopal Church. But this is a bit of a second career for me after having spent, you know, 15 years or so teaching. Um, I, I actually grew up in San Antonio and in Little Rock, Arkansas, in sort of a conservative evangelical family. 
after college, I moved to Southeast Asia and taught English as a second language over there for a couple of years and had some um, wonderful and also harrowing experiences there and uh, ended up coming back and continuing to teach English as a second language for a while and then got a master's degree in intercultural studies and a master's of fine arts and creative writing. And so I taught um, some writing courses and some communications courses. And most recently, um, my husband and I were working at Taylor University in Indiana, which is a evangelical college. And so I was teaching there and helping uh, direct the honors programming. And a lot of that was fun and really great. And then some things happened and we decided it was time for us to move on. And I got this call to the priesthood. And so we ended up in Durham. That is the very short version. <laughs> I've lived a lot of places. So Indiana, most recently, I totally skipped over Seattle where I lived for three years, California. Or, yeah. So I've been around. Well, and, and like in that short summary, you ticked off, I think it was like three master's degree, maybe pursuing the fourth, <laughs> you know, the, usually those, you know, those just take a blink of an eye to right. accomplish. Yeah. Uh, this is just my third. I like to say three times a master, never a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, three times a bridesmaid, never a bride, whatever. <laughs> In pursuit of humility towards my friends who do have a PhD, recognizing that most of them did not have to pursue a master's degree to get it, that uh, those of us that have a master's degree and pursued other degrees have done equal amounts of education as they have. So, right. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I say that as I'm, a, I'm in a three-year doctorate of education program right now. So, oh, yeah. you are. Well, so blessings. you have a you have a, a new book uh, where goodness still grows in an age of division uh, and, and vitriol. Um, you're inviting writers to pursue virtue um, through Jesus. Um, you write, something has gone terribly wrong in the culture that taught me about virtue. I learned how to find the truth in scripture and orient my life around loving God and neighbor from a community that seems to have stopped believing many of the things they taught me. What was the impetus for this book? Like I said, I grew up in conservative evangelical churches in the South. And um, for me, that childhood was actually really nurturing and wonderful in, in a lot of ways. Um, and so as I got older and lived in different places and had different experiences in the world, a lot of my views started changing politically or theologically. Um, you know, I started to care about climate change in a way that the cultures of my childhood had not, or I started to um, believe that men and women could both be called to leadership in the church, um, where the churches of my childhood would have said that was only for men. So my views changed in some of those ways, but I still um, felt a lot of kinship, I think, with the conservative evangelical churches that I came from until about 2015, 2016, um, during the presidential election, when, you know, and let me back up and say that I didn't just grow up in the South, but I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, at the time when Bill Clinton um, was, uh, was elected to the presidency. And so I was in Little Rock when, for instance, the Monica Lewinsky scandal was in the news. And all the Christians I knew started talking about decency and morality and what we expected of a president and truth too, right? Um, <laughs> you know, Clinton's famous, it depends on what the definition of is, is. I don't know if you remember that line, but there were a lot of these conversations in the air at church, um, expecting our political leaders to be people who exhibited virtue and character and integrity. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of decades and it's 2016 and conservative evangelicals, the same people who had been so critical of Bill Clinton in my youth were lining up happily supporting a candidate for president um, who could not be described as virtuous or a person of character and integrity. Um, 
and who in fact, I mean, if the thing they were most critical of Clinton about was his sexual ethic, I mean, Donald Trump uh, is not a person with a good sexual ethic, right? And yet they were willing to overlook that. And so it was sort of that hypocrisy that really shook me and made me question what's what's going on here how is it possible that the people who taught me about goodness and truth and integrity are throwing their wholehearted support and i mean a lot of them it was not like they were holding their noses they were they were throwing their wholehearted support behind this man and that caused me to feel like i needed to go back and sort of reinvestigate the virtues and the morality that I had grown up with and see what went wrong here, what was missing. And that was the impetus for this book. You write about this great hypocrisy from the evangelical church of your upbringing. Um, you know, we're going to get to kind of the political shift here, uh, at least in the last five or six years uh, when it comes to, to Donald Trump. But you know, do, do you think that the hypocrisy, um, do you think it's always been there? Or maybe there was just part of the veneer being a, a white evangelical America and stepping out of that realm that has allowed you to see what it truly is? I think that you've even already had some historians on the podcast who have provided great answers to this question. I know you had Kristen Dumais recently, and I think a lot of books have come out in the past few years that do a great job of looking at the actual history um, and a, of pointing out that there has been a problem of whiteness in the American church from the beginning. And a, a lot of what happened in the last few years was I mean, I, I like to say it was apocalyptic. Um, in fact, that's, that's why the introduction of my book is called Virtues for the Apocalypse, because, you know, apocalypse, what that word actually means is an unveiling, a revealing of something. And I think that what's happened in the past few years is that a reality about the American church has been unveiled, has been revealed. And a lot of us have had our eyes opened in new ways. Um, I, yeah, I, I think that white supremacy is really at the root of this problem, and it's been there for a long time, and, and we haven't reckoned with it fully yet. Well, among moderates and progressives, um, talking truthfully about conservatives and white evangelicals has become such a popular avenue that they're heard countless books and podcasts and blogs about it but the reason for it is the culmination of this conservative movement and the utterly baffling unholy marriage with this former president in 2016 subsequent 2020 election and the continued uh, promulgation of of the big lie it leaves most of us um that grew up in this culture um just left honestly utterly speechless um you know, to, to push back a little bit on the book, somewhat playing the devil's advocate here, do you really sure. believe that that the pursuit of such virtues will change the soul of those that have handed it over to the right-wing political machine? That's an interesting question, an interesting way to put it. Um, I do I really believe that the pursuit of such virtues can change our souls? I mean, I, I really only believe that Jesus can change our souls, right? Jesus can change our hearts and our minds. Um, and so I think I would wanna say that first, but I think once Jesus has changed us, we, go on changing, right? It's the already and the not yet of the new creation in us. And I think uh, the, a, a great part of that is, is pursuing, um, we want to be formed in ways that are virtuous. It's the fruits of the spirit. We want the fruits of the spirit to be showing up in our lives. And I think you know, virtue is an interesting word itself. The word virtue comes from the Latin word vir, which 
means man, is related to manhood. So even our word virtue sort of has implicit in it this idea that to be virtuous is to be a man. <laughs> and I think that's part of the problem is that when we talk about virtue, we have let a small group of people, white men, Western white men, <laughs> define virtue for too long. And it's not that they've always been wrong, but it has always been incomplete. And sometimes it has been wrong. And so we've had this narrow view of what virtue can be. And in a lot of cases, um, people have used those narrow definitions of virtue really to wound other people, to um, sort of beat them down and keep them in line, uh, conform to this view of virtue. So what I try to do in the book is not, is not to do that, not to say, here's exactly what these virtues mean and how to pursue them, but instead to say, let's crack open these virtues and let's think about the ways we were taught about them and what was right in that and what was wrong in that. And is there a more expansive way to think about each of these virtues, kindness, hospitality, purity, modesty? If we listen to a different set of voices talking about these virtues, what might we learn? How might our understanding of what it means to live with kindness or with purity um, be broken open and expanded um, in ways that are really life-giving, not only for us, but for our communities. Um, so, so I really want to not just beat people over the head again with like a call to be virtuous, um, but to say, actually, we haven't always um, really understood these virtues well, because we haven't listened well, um, especially to, to people who are um, from different backgrounds, different cultures, uh, different socioeconomic places. And if we can learn to listen better, we can also learn to live better. Well, two things. One is I, I cannot think of a single instance in human history in which white men have messed up anything uh, <laughs> at, at all. Um, Secondly, yeah, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I do ask that, you know, I ask that question so much tongue, tongue in cheek in the sense of, you know, I'm, I'm a local church pastor uh, right. beyond what I do here. And, and if I don't believe that pursuing Jesus uh, can can change lives, then I'm, I'm wasting my time. I, I think the, the biggest issue um, is, and we'll get to this a little bit in some of the questions, uh, is I don't think the realization that people are not following Jesus um, in the vast majority of the evangelical movement, but following this ideology um, that is loosely related to Jesus and that mm -hmm. differentiation and that hard work of spiritual formation is what's taking place, you know, for ministers uh, nowadays. So let's, let's break that down in size a little. Let's talk about some of these virtues. So let's start with kindness and and reflecting on your upbringing, you wrote, kindness was a way of maintaining social classes rather than a way of removing barriers between people. Kindness wasn't about recognizing the image of God and others, but maintaining one's own image or social status. Mm -hmm. Take us a little deeper there. Sure. Kindness, you know, kindness always felt like a, a woman's virtue to me growing up. Like women are to be gentle and modest and humble and kind. Men are to be like, brave and you know daring and all those things and so uh I was never very interested in kindness because it felt so toothless to me um but I I had this experience I was at a writing workshop and another woman was praying for me and she she pr prayed that God had given her this word for me which was kindness and I was sort of like oh I don't want it <laughs> take that word back so I started looking into the word kindness to see um, what I was missing there. And I learned, I was reading Catholic theologian Janet Soskis, her book, The Kindness of God. And she writes that kindness etymologically is related to the word um, kin. And so when we talk about the kindness of God, we're actually talking about God becoming kin with us, God becoming our kind. And that really exploded the whole idea of kindness for me to think that it's not about being gentle or nice. 
kindness is about God being willing to become like us, to become our kind uh, so that God can, can love us. And when I think about that and what that means for me and my relationships with other people, it's not that I need to be nice with them, but it is nice to them, but it is that I need to be willing to find an honest point of connection with everyone I come into contact with. Instead of thinking like, oh, that's not my kind of person. I need to look at them and, um, and see that we are kin and, and see how I can acknowledge that and love and honor our kinship. Um, and I don't think either the left or the right have done this really well. We're, we're both like very eager to demonize the other side rather than to try to find a point of kinship as our starting place. Um, and I also think it's a virtue that goes beyond human and human relationships. Um, but I was reading Robin Wall Kimmerer, the Native American writer, and ecologist, and she writes about um, a word in her, um, well, she, she writes about our kinship with the plant world and suggests that instead of calling plants it, we could find another pronoun even that, that recognizes and names some of our kinship with the natural world. Um, and interestingly, though, the word that she takes from her uh, native Potawatomi tongue uh, is a word which she shortens as kin. And so um, it was just this beautiful connection for me of like, she's naming our, that kindness has something to do with our kinship to the natural world and our kinship with each other. Um, and neither of those are easy things to really look at because once you really look at it, you recognize how much um, we are called to give to each other, how much we owe to each other, our actual interdependence. And as Americans, and I think as Western Christians, we're living with this legacy of independence and the autonomous self. And neither of those are really Christian ideas. Um, instead, interdependence is is what Christianity names for us and calls us to and and calls as our reality we exist interdependently and and I think kindness is a virtue that helps us begin to recognize that let's dive a little deeper there you wrote for a long time in America, unkindness was written into our very laws and conventions. white Americans refused to recognize our kinship with indigenous people enslaves exactly because we wanted to preserve our own wealth. I think for many white evangelicals, because they believe this narrative that they are being besieged at all times and from all mm -hmm. directions, they continue to scapegoat others to justify their fear and, and grasp of power. So how do we help people recognize their lack of general goodness and kindness towards their neighbor, especially their neighbor that's very different from them when when this is the narrative that they have believed for so long? How do we get Christians to stop feeling like they're the victims in, the, in this situation? That's a great question. Um, I mean, part of what I'm getting at in that section you read from is another etymological connection, which is that in Middle English, kindness actually meant a title to a piece of land, an inheritance, so literally in Middle English, a kindness was an inheritance a father would leave to his son. And I thought about that and I began to take a look at inheritance laws and um, inheritances that get passed down in America. And I found this study that, and I think a study like this is maybe part of the answer to your question about how we can how we can help each other begin to see that we are not always the besieged victims in this story. Um, when, you, when you look at some of the statistics about inheritance among black families and white families in America, 
And these researchers were um, looking at the influence of a college education to see like, does that actually even out sort of the economic disparity between black families in America? And they expected that uh, a college education would level that playing field a bit. And in fact, what they found out is um, that a college education made little difference at all. What really made a difference was a family inheritance, uh, intergenerational transfer of wealth. And that, what that means, if you go back just a couple generations, is you see that a couple of generations ago, when you look at wills, you see that black people are part of the inheritance that white fathers were passing down to their sons. You can look at wills and actually see listed in, in the property that's passed down uh, the names of enslaved people. So white people were passing down black people as part of their inherited wealth. And for generations, black people had no way to um, build wealth or pass it down. So this isn't some sort of ancient thing. It's actually something that is still affecting families because this has just been a few generations. And the thing about wealth is that it's sticky. Um, it really does put you on this trajectory um, that replicates generation by generation. Um, I actually have a friend in Indiana who was looking into um, a black woman Tori, who was looking into her family history, and she found her great-grandmother, um, or was it great-great-grandmother? She found one of her ancestors listed as three-year-old girl in a white family's will under farm equipment. And she can remember her great-grandmother telling stories about her sister who was a slave. And <laughs> Tori's um, great great, great aunt would say, he was a good master though. He always made sure there was enough food. And, you know, even as a child, Tori could, could plainly see good master is kind of a contradiction in terms. Um, you know, I, I lived and worshiped in Indiana in a, in a county that had one of the um, last, one of the nearly the last lynching in America. It was in 1930. And Tori is actually distantly related to one of the lynching victims. I think once we actually look at some stories, I mean, actually having a relationship with someone and hearing their family history, but even just looking at the statistics, um, the economic numbers will, will do some work to help free you from that uh, misguided notion that you have always been the one who's besieged the victim in this American story. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, 
free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This week's CBF podcast conversation is brought to you by the Youth Theology Network. They're a resource for helping high school students understand if God is calling them to ministry. Their online hub is where you can connect with programs across the country, direct students to programs that meet their needs, read inspiring stories, and find vocational discernment resources. As a mentor to high school students who are considering ministry, you know your work is important, but it can also be lonely and overwhelming. With YTN, you'll find the information you need for building or scaling your vocational discernment programs, as well as resources to help students take their next faithful step. To awaken what's possible for high school students in your life, please visit youththeologynetwork.org. That's youththeologynetwork.org. You know, it, it seems um, that I have a lot of guests recently that have written about the evangelical purity uh, culture, but mm-hmm. I love your unique wisdom into it. You talk about being taught to have a disgust monitor for anything, quote, unclean or impure. Um in what ways do you think these reinforced disgust monitors, as you've called them, or, or lenses of all things non-heterosexual, patriarchal, and white has um, an irreparable twist uh, of how evangelicals understand sex and sexuality? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I basically just think purity is the wrong way to even talk about sexuality. <laughs> uh that disgust monitor it's um it's a concept from anthropologist mary douglas whose book i think it's called purity and danger uh looked anthropologically at some other cultures and what the function of a disgust monitor is um this is like the idea i mean i know that phrase isn't familiar to most people this is like the idea that like if there's a hair in your soup you feel disgusted by that but if the hair is on the head of your beloved, you find that beautiful, right? And so what makes it disgusting is that it's out of place. That's really where our concept of um, purity and disgust uh, comes together. The soup is no longer pure because it has hair in it. Hair is out of place, right? And so even if you look scripturally, purity is not a word in scripture that is usually used to talk about sex. Um, and so, and so in using the word purity for the last, you know, 40, 50 years to talk about sex in the evangelical church and with evangelical youth, we've brought in this idea of disgust, um, to our idea of sex. And I think we can see the harm all over the place in that, you know, not only like my friends who didn't kiss until their wedding day, and then were never able to find a healthy sexual connection with each other. And ultimately after several years got divorced, that's some damage of this purity culture that they grew up in that sort of intimately and almost inextricably connected in their minds, the idea of sex with disgust. Um, I mean, the, you know, the damage that this idea has done to our, our gay friends and brothers and sisters and kinfolk is even more obvious, I think, um, if you simply look at the statistics of how many gay kids are suicidal and you look at how many gay kids are suicidal, and then how many gay kids in the church are suicidal, and the numbers are much higher with gay kids who've been, who've grown up in the church, right? They are much more likely to be suicidal. Um, I don't think the damage is irreparable, but I do think connecting um, the idea of sex to the word purity also connected it to disgust, and that's that's had damage in all kinds of ways that 
that we're definitely seeing now in our culture. Um, you know, connected to this theology of uh, purity is modesty. And, and my God, if I could have <laughs> been given a dollar for every time I heard a youth minister or summer camp staff dictate to girls what they could and couldn't wear when I was growing up, yeah. And, and the primary reason behind it was so toxic towards both genders mm -hmm. in the sense that girls just needed to cover things up because all boys are just ravaged with uncontrollable lust. And if they truly love their brothers in Christ, they would cover things up. Um, if this isn't modesty, then what is? Yeah, I mean, first I want to say it might be tangentially related to modesty, <laughs> um, but not primarily. When you look at how modesty is talked about in scripture, um, what the authors of scripture are talking about is actually being um, careful with what we do with our wealth. And so in particular, if you look at 1 Timothy 2, um, these are the verses that say that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire. Um, this is really the only time uh, in the New Testament that the word modesty is connected to what women wear. And there is nothing here about protecting men um, or about male lust or or, or sexual desire at all. Um, what Paul is talking about here is actually about displaying wealth. So um, Dr. Sandra Glan, who's a seminary professor um, in Dallas, she's done some work on this and notes that for first century women in Ephesus, pearls and braids and clothing were important markers of social status and wealth. And so, I mean, my daughter has a pearl necklace. It does not seem like a marker of social status or wealth to me. She's 12, right? Um, but at that time, pearls were not common. Um, my daughter also wears her hair in braids, which seems appropriate for a 12-year-old because we think of braids as sort of cute and childish, unsophisticated. But in Ephesus, braids were a sign of wealth and rank because... Um, what she's talking about here, these braids, they're sort of intricate hairstyles that required slave labor um, and leisure time to have, you had to ha have an enslaved person who did your hair for you, who spent a few hours doing it every few days. Um, that was a luxury to maintain a style like that was to show that you belonged to the ruling or the upper class. So when Paul is saying um, women should dress modestly, not with braided hair and golden pearls, he's saying, don't come to church showing off your wealth. Don't come to church wearing things that say to everyone, look, I belong to the upper class because you're separating yourself from your brothers and sisters and kin in Christ when you do that. Um, if you're godly, you're discreet about class. You're not using your wealth to create some separation between you and your neighbor. Uh, what, Paul wants, what Paul wants Christians to do is to use our wealth in ways that break down those separations between us and our neighbors. And so I think for us today, like what, what does that actually mean? Most of us are not showing up to church in Teslas or dripping in diamonds, right? Um, we have no problem with that. But are we thinking about the ways that we wear our wealth and our social privilege? Are we being thoughtful about that? And I don't, I don't mean those obvious things, but maybe some less obvious things. Maybe um, if I've got the newest iPhone every year and I'm in church with people who can't, I mean, I was at breakfast this morning. We, our church has a breakfast for homeless folks in the area. If you're sitting next to some homeless folks in the area, um, you, can, you can wear things and you can pull out things that make it obvious 
that you are from a different social class than they are. Or you cannot display those things. You cannot flaunt your wealth. And you can show up in a way that is presenting yourself as a neighbor. And I think if we're, even if we're just in relationships like those, we're going to be less likely to spend our money in ways that are irresponsible or selfish, right? So that's what modesty is. It's about using your power in ways that don't cause division within the church, but that actually break down division. And this is how it could connect to clothing that we wear. Um, beauty, physical beauty is one kind of power. Money is not the only kind of power. Physical beauty is itself a kind of power. And so when you think about what you're wearing, you can think about how am I wielding the power of my beautiful body right now? Am I wielding it in a way that's going to cause division? Um, or am I wielding it in a way that is for the good of um, the whole body, the whole body of Christ? So, so I don't want to say it's absolutely disconnected from what you wear, but I do want to say that that's a virtue that's been misunderstood and weaponized against women uh, for a long time and in a way that's simply not scriptural. I'm going to say that you have convicted me in this Sunday. I'm, I'm going to resist driving my Tesla with my pearls. Um, well, I mean, yeah. it's Paul, not me, really convicting yeah. you there. Thanks, Paul, yet again. Um, so <laughs> you wrote about authenticity, and which is often cited as the number one reason that people are, are leaving the evangelical mm. church. People are tired mm -hmm. of the fakeness, the facade. But I think the evangelical church is its own worst enemy in the sense that the goal is to present a perfect self to stay above reproach, but that's mm. not how real, you know, that's not what real faith looks like. So, so talk to us about authenticity. Yeah, I think I, growing up in the evangelical church, my understanding of being authentic, I mean, this was, I was like tail end of Gen X too. And so authentic meant something very real to us. Um, like flannel and grunge and alternative music, right? Um, it meant not putting on a show. And I think along with that, it meant like being uh, sort of really who you are, spontaneous, um, gritty, all, it's all right here. This is who I am. And I think that that's not entirely wrong, but it it is partially wrong because for the Christian to be authentic is to live into the identity that Christ has given you. And the way that we live into that identity is not by sort of putting our gritty self forefronted, um, but by seeking to put ourselves in places where we are continually more formed into the image of Christ. Let me step back a, a minute and say, um, part of how I saw this coming out in 2016 that I thought was really interesting was that people were saying that Trump was the most authentic candidate for president. And the reason that they said this was because they would say he tells it like it is. Like he he appeared to speak off the cuff and like say the things that everyone thought and wasn't really willing to say. Um, and that equated in people's minds with authenticity. Now, I don't think speaking off the cuff or um, seeming to speak from the heart is really what authenticity is. Um, and, you know, if you speaking off the cuff and speaking from your heart means you spewing some really hateful rhetoric about immigrants or people of color or women, then what your authenticity is revealing to me is that you are not a good person and not someone who I want to follow, right? Um, so authenticity isn't a higher value than character or integrity um, if authenticity just means like, telling it like it is or revealing your terrible inner self through your spontaneous speech right but i think americans american christians were particularly primed to understand authenticity in that way because the the puritans and um some of the early colonists who came over to america were 
coming um, because they believed in free prayer, spontaneous prayer. They were escaping the liturgical prayer of the Anglican Church in England. And this was a big part of the conflict in the church at the time in England was how do we pray? Is spontaneous prayer more authentic than these liturgical prayers that are written down? And the people who said yes um, are the people who came and settled in America. So we have this very interesting history with prayer that actually connects to how we understand authenticity today. Um, to be something that is like spontaneous and from the heart, not something that is rehearsed. But I think that authenticity is something that we have to rehearse. And um, when I, I was reading theologian Kevin Van Hooser, who talks about the drama of doctrine, and he says that basically we ought to understand that um, we're all given sort of a divine casting call. And our identities come through how we embody those divine calls that we've been given. And that's sort of theatrical. Um, learning the role we've been cast in in the drama of doctrine means fitting into its costumes, memorizing its lines, um, or improvising them. Um, my best chance for authenticity comes when I embrace the role that I've been given and learn how to act acted out. I'm sort of like a method actor, right? I can't expect the right response to just emerge spontaneously. I have to practice it and memorize it until, yeah, the lines become so familiar to me that I can speak them without even thinking about it. This is what a good actor does. If you want to play your role well, you memorize those lines and you practice them. And yes, every actor um, inhabits their role a little differently. Uh, both Laurence Olivier and Kenneth Branagh played Hamlet, and they both played Hamlet very well. And they also both played Hamlet very differently from each other. And in that same way, each of us inhabits Christ and is inhabited by Christ in our own distinctive ways. And so authenticity actually means practicing that role we've been given, we've been called to, um, until we can live into it more fully, until we can act it out more realistically. Um, so it's authenticity is just one of the most interesting virtues to play around with, looking at the history, looking at the, the theology behind it. Um, there's a lot more in the chapter, so I don't want to, I don't want to go into all of it, but, um, but it's a really interesting topic. In, in a sense, this book uh, is a call to virtue, but it's also a spiritual memoir through uh, the religion of your upbringing. Uh, emotionally and, and cognitively, what was the experience like processing all of this? You know, when I started writing this in 2016, I guess, um, I was waking up with panic attacks, not panic attacks. Um, I was waking up with my heart racing in the middle of the night sometimes. Um, because it was the, the election of 2016 was affecting me emotionally and spiritually and mentally in ways that really nothing else had. Um, and that's when I started writing this. And I think the experience of writing it was um, so life-giving for me because it was my own way of processing what I was experiencing and, and recognizing that it wasn't, that what I had been raised with was all wrong, but it was that there was so much more. And what was out there that was more was so life-giving, was so expansive, was so nourishing, that to give myself this task of looking at these virtues, looking at how I understood them as a child, but then looking at how else I could understand them um, felt restorative and nurturing and like it was giving me a stronger foundation um, from which to understand myself and my world and my faith in God. And I, I just felt so encouraged seeing people whose lives had been different than mine, whose backgrounds were different, 
um, and seeing how they understood faith and virtue and following Christ. Um, really, the, the more I listen to other people and learn from their experiences, uh, the more I feel, um, what's the word? The, the more I feel that my faith is strengthened and I can keep taking the next step because there are times when I feel so despondent over the state of the church in America. Uh, I just wonder how we can keep going. And I think for me, part of the answer has been to expand it. Uh, when we moved to Durham, we started attending a historically black Episcopal church. And my priest is a, a wonderful black woman from the Bahamas. And um, to be in a, in a context that was very different from any context I had ever been in was, was really nurturing for me. Um, so I think the experience emotionally of writing the book was very healthy. <laughs> it helped me sort of move beyond that heart racing in the middle of the night. And it helped me believe again that what I have believed is true. And, um, you know, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. The book is Where Goodness Still Grows. Our guest is Amy Peterson. You can learn more about her work at amypeterson.net. Amy, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. Um, though I appear to be overly cynical, I am grateful for your call to uh, pursue Jesus as his ways uh, will truly transform our soul and our world. That is the hope. Thank you for having me. It was a, it was a pleasure to talk with you, Andy. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK offers multiple ways to pursue theological education, helping you learn and grow in your area of ministry. Programs include a 75-hour Master of Divinity degree with concentration in BSK's areas of emphasis, including Black Church Studies, Rural Ministry, and Pastoral Care. For ordained ministers or lay leaders alike, BSK offers nine-hour certificates in Black Church Studies, Rural Ministries, and Pastoral Care, as well as two Exploring Ministry certificates for general ministry training. BSK also offers additional subject-specific training with Flourish workshops in subjects such as Introduction to Youth Ministry, Essentials in Youth Ministry, and the upcoming The Flight of the Soul of America. Now enrolling for fall 2022. Apply today at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 